Valley Labor Report with David Story and Jacob Morrison. The time has come for America to hear the truth. We are going to stand with them, and not only are we going to fight for their rights, but we're going to stand up for our rights here in our state, in our homes, and in our community. United States of America is not going to be decided in the courts. It's not going to be decided in Congress. It's not going to be decided on talk radio. And it sure is not going to be decided on Fox News. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. For the Valley. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host and fellow agitator David Story. It is Saturday, September 12th, 2020, and we are broadcasting live online and on the radio on WVNN in the Huntsville, Decatur, Athens listening area from Athens, Alabama. A recording of the program will play tomorrow, Sunday, September 13th, 2020 on the great WGOL in Russellville, Alabama. Today, we'll be talking to Maxim Baru, the International Organizing Department Chair for the Industrial Workers of the World, about the IWW, organizing, and more. I reckon we'll probably talk some about uh, patriotism and its role in society, maybe take some calls and more on today's Valley Labor Report. Uh, Thanks for tuning in, folks. We appreciate your time. If you want to see what we're up to throughout the week, get our snide quips about the news of the day, then you should follow us on social media. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash Valley Labor Report. We're on Twitter at Labor Reporters. I'm on Twitter at Jacob M underscore A-L. David is on Twitter at Radical Unionist. That is R-A-D-I-C-L Unionist. Uh, And if you miss part of the show and want to go back and watch it later, you can search YouTube for The Valley Labor Report and subscribe to our channel. You can go back and watch the full show there, and we also clip segments throughout the week. Uh, We upload the program on more than 11 different podcasting apps, so you can go to your listening platform of choice and see if we're there. Uh, You can go to thevalleylaborreport.transistor.fm slash subscribe. And finally... If you appreciate our work and want to help us stay on the air, consider throwing us a couple dollars a month on patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. On to the interview. So like I said, Maxim Baru is the International Organizing Department Chair for the IWW. He is also the former head of labor organizing for EFLING, one of the largest labor unions in Iceland. Finally, he serves as the longest distance executive for the Tozen Union in Japan. Uh, so he's been around the block. He knows his stuff. And, um, and I'm really excited to be talking to him today. So, uh, Maxim, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thanks. Glad to be on with you. Great. Uh, so 
like I said, we're we're gonna we're gonna have kind of a a, a wide ranging interview. We want uh, we want to talk about the IWW, uh, maybe like how one goes about organizing a union in their workplace, and if we've got time, I'd like to talk about some success stories. But let's just talk about the IWW. You know, when when folks uh, when folks come to you and they want to learn more about the IWW, what it's about, um, what our theory of unionism is, and I say our because uh, myself and David are both uh, members of the IWW as well as um, AFL-CIO affiliated unions. We're dual carters. So um, just tell us a little bit about the IWW and, and, and the IWW's theory of unionism. Sure, yeah. So, uh, I mean, as, as everybody is well aware, the IWW is a labor union that's been around uh, for over 100 years. Uh, essentially, to put it in a nutshell, uh, practices a model of unionism that places action in all its forms at the heart of what it means to be a union, of the practice of the union. Uh, we affirm the primacy of mobilization over negotiation practices in the fight for social progress and against social regression. And uh, without excluding negotiations, uh, it's a model that is premised on essentially trying to build a balance of power uh, favorable to, to the workers, to the people who work at a particular place at a particular time. Um, and lastly, we don't just seek to solve people's workplace issues um, in what sometimes might be the most efficient but top-down manner. Uh, but we actually want to solve problems, uh, encourage people to solve problems for themselves in a way that helps to sharpen class consciousness. So, for example, uh, there's many times when a union executive or a union representative uh, working in an office somewhere can call up an employer in the event of a dispute and potentially solve it or ameliorate it by a phone by an intimidating phone call but that doesn't really build power for people at the workplace uh, and what we would like to do is is to empower people to do that to equip them with the skills to defend themselves the reality uh, this is not just a matter of ideology quite a lot of it is just a matter of, of pragmatism uh, no no matter how good a union is uh, the, the 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 unions uh, organizers uh, in terms of, for example, like, like we are at the organizing department or, or elsewhere, they're going to be always far away from you. Uh, we're available for people, uh, we support people, but the reality is that the people who are working at their workplace, they are the ones that are there day in and day out. The employers are all uh, fragmented in every workplace. They are present in every workplace. They are constantly thinking and innovating new and horrendous ways to exploit their staff uh, and find ways to make money off of them. And it's, it's, it's us, the workers, that are present at our jobs, and we have to be well-equipped to defend ourselves uh, and leverage uh, the weight of the national union uh, behind ourselves. Uh, but uh, that's, that's the kind of framework in a nutshell. Yeah, and one of the things that really drew me to the IWW early on was the egalitarian form of transforming that worker power away from uh, away from representatives, paid representatives, more towards, uh, like you said, the the puts the power on the shop floor because if anybody knows more about what they need and how to handle it, it it's it's the workers on the floor as opposed to people that are hundreds and sometimes thousands, several hundred miles away from the workers. So, 
Yeah. It really, Absolutely. really puts puts that power into their hands. The only drawback, of course, is the fact that you really need activist people on the floor. You know, it. Uh, you can't. A lot of the AFL-CIO folk, uh, unions nowadays kind of say, "Well, where's where's my union at? Where's my union mm-hmm. at doing this?" And this this you it, you really need to transform that mentality of the union isn't. Uh, the international in in Maryland or in DC, it's you, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think there is a little bit of a lack of awareness the role that the unions themselves have played in establishing that mindset. Uh, in fact, we've seen countless times uh, where workers feel that they would get some kind of added protection by certification with a large establishment union because they are given the impression that uh, there is like swaths of lawyers behind them, mm. that they have swaths of people ready to intervene between them and their employer um, uh, and kind of take the pressure off of them. And that's a real motivation. We can't, under, we can't uh, underestimate that. Uh, the amount of pressure that it puts on individual people to fight and face their boss face-to-face day in and day out is immense. And so it's a great temptation uh, to, to kind of shift uh, that responsibility Uh, onto paid union staff, but one of the things that we've observed uh, both in the United States and Canada is that essentially unions uh, for quite a long time now have begun to act as kind of like labor force management. Like if the employers are the labor force consumption and they they demand, the labor unions have in many cases become, uh, have taken on a role of kind of like a labor force supply management and they have torpedoed actively member mobilization where it has sprung up time and again and in, uh, encouraged a particular dependence and then when there when when uh, uh, members of the union at the shop floor begin to act as though they were dependent and begin to treat the union as some kind of insurance company uh, there's they complain about it uh, but the reality is that uh, uh, they've they've uh, nurtured and fostered uh, um, this kind of uh, culture and it's something that indeed um, is going to take a lot of work uh, to undo I, I completely agree with that and I've seen what you're talking about in person I, I have I've I've been party to conversations between um, uh, between union officials and people interested in the union where um, or in a union where I had been encouraging this person interested in unionizing their workplace it, it was um, uh, it w- they weren't interested um, in going with IWW. It was a different union, um, but but I knew the person, and so I you know I so I tagged along, and you know I was encouraging this person to okay you know let's uh, let's start maybe getting to know your coworkers, maybe getting a social map of your workplace, a physical map of your workplace, figuring out who your social leaders are, start building a committee, da 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 da, and the union official that I was there with was like um, no 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 no. no. No, no, no. Yeah. You don't. <laughs> yeah. They feel threatened. They you feel threatened. Yeah, he was like, he was like, you don't need to do any of that. We have paid organizers, and we'll get signatures for you, and we'll do an NLRB election, and everything's going to be fine. You don't need yeah. any of this. Any of this. I mean, well, if- part of what part of what you deal with whenever you transfer that responsibility of 
them organizing, you also, in the long run, lose that authority that you have right. as workers on the right. shop floor. Right. And people don't never put put that into perspective. You know, it's like, yeah, you can rely on somebody else to do that work for you, but mm-hmm. you're going to lose that that right. power that exactly. you gain. And and the thing is, and and Maxim, you can riff on this a little bit, and I'm sure you've got lots to say about it, but. The thing is, is that the most power that workers have is their labor power on the shop floor. If workers become dependent on armies of lawyers, even if you know such a thing existed in, in their union, and, and in some places it does, if they become uh, reliant on armies of lawyers to file NLRB complaints, even where they're successful, NLRB complaints take months years to uh, to uh, uh, to come to completion and so it uh, and, and then and you know there are also like uh, consumer campaigns that that uh, you know consumer boycotts that that are effective in some cases but the most the quickest most efficient and most powerful thing that you can do to uh, to cut into the company or the agency's bottom line is work stoppages or actions on the shop floor with the uh, labor power taking away the labor power of the workers and uh, that is something that the IWW really tries to emphasize tries to drill into the heads of uh, prospective and current members so that they are aware of where their power really comes from and they don't become reliant on something else so um, Maxima as soon as we come back I'm going to let you talk a little bit about that and then talk about how to organize stay tuned You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with David Story and Jacob Morrison. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time, but the attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maple, Tucker, and Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtandj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. All workers deserve fair wages, affordable health care, and a retirement plan that enables them to retire with dignity. All workers deserve to have a say about the terms and conditions of their employment, not just the bosses. With the Machinist Union's over 600,000 members having our back, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama has been serving workers' interests for over 20 years. Our members have the best health insurance in the area with zero deductible plans. We set the bar for pay in the area with over $40 an hour rates, consistently averaging the highest non-college degree jobs in North Alabama with some of the best retirement plans in the industry. We can do the same for you. Together, we remain united, raising our voices to ensure justice on the job and service in the community. The Machinist Union is a true Southern Union founded in Atlanta in 1888. We have been serving members' needs for 132 years. The longevity of our union proves our dedication and loyalty to the working class. The Machinist Union isn't just for machinists. 
We represent workers in government, healthcare, auto workers, aerospace workers, transportation workers, the defense industry, and woodworking. Our members even build the iconic Harley-Davidson motorcycles. If you're ready to get serious about better benefits and wages, if you want to have a voice in your workplace with over 600,000 members to back you up, call or email us today at 256-286-3704 or organize at iamaw44.org. Here in Huntsville, federal employees are an invaluable part of the nation's defense, offering unmatched expertise in engineering and technology and as stewards of taxpayer dollars. What we ask for in return is to be treated with fairness, dignity, and respect. The American Federation of Government Employees, AFGE, Local 1858, is a union of working people looking out for each other, making sure that we're treated right. To inquire about joining or to learn more, call 256-876-4880. Hey y'all, are you tired of hearing that the South is just a bunch of racist rednecks? Or tune in to Dixieland of the Proletariat podcast. We talk about Southern working class history and current events through a leftist perspective. Join Nelson, Senior Telecommunications Director Tommy, Comrade Kate, former pig farmer Tyler, and Brother William, wherever you stream your podcast. And good Lord willing, the creek don't rise. We'll see y'all next time. It's Dixieland of the Proletariat, y'all. WVNN, depend on it. This is Jacob Morrison. I am here with my co-host, David Story. On the line, we have Maxim Baru. He is the uh, chair, uh, the international chair for the organizing department of the IWW. We're talking about the IWW, their, uh, uh, our theory of unionism, and, uh, and we were talking about where the most and the most efficient and the most powerful power for workers comes from, which is... Uh, the ability to withhold their labor on the shop floor. So, uh, Maxim, I'm sure that you've got a little bit to say about that, um, uh, you know, uh, going off of what David and I were saying. And then if you want to transition from there um, into how how the IWW organizes. Like, okay, so let's say somebody's hearing this, they're hearing this interview, and they're like, that sounds interesting. Um, I might want to do that. How does one organize and organize with the IWW. Sure, yeah. So in addition to what we've already just talked about uh, before the break, uh, the other reason it's very important for unions to foster a culture in which every workplace, and in some cases every workstation or department of the company, sees itself as an active, combative, and somewhat autonomous cell of the union is because it is those people that understand their process of production and which parts of that process can be disrupted. So most people think of a strike uh, as as, uh, there is uh, a vote, then there's sometimes even a notice to the employer. They, um, you know, assemble outside of the workplace with pickets, and it might even be quite far away from the workplace, might even be like on the sidewalk opposite the business. And the reality is that those types of strikes uh, are the most frequent, they're the most uh, legally you know, inside the box, but they're also the least effective. Not only they're the least effective because employers are well prepared for them, they don't uh, threaten 
threaten anything, threaten any kind of property they have. They're designed primarily to kind of give the public a signaling effect, kind of like don't do business here because people are on strike. But um, the and the, the other element about it is that people are afraid. As soon as people walk off the job, the clock is ticking about how they get, when are they going to get back on the job? So the most effective strike weapon historically has been to stay on the job um, and disrupt that process of production. Nowadays, we have all these words for it, like slowdowns, work to rules, where you just you perform your, you know, your duties as a 100% in detail prescribed in your employee handbook or in your contract. Um, in the early 20th century, those those categories that we now consider completely legitimate were called sabotage. It wasn't the destruction of property necessarily. It was the deliberate, conscious, planned intervention in the process of production. Um, and it has this double effect, not only of being very effective because you're damaging the company while drawing a paycheck, but you're also, in a sense, infecting the workforce with a sense of disobedience that lasts beyond the strike beyond that particular action. And when we have organized strikes, um, we depend on the, not, the specialized knowledge of the workers themselves about their own process of production. If the union does not have that line with the shop floor and does not put those members in the cockpit of organizing their own strike, uh, the only the only strike they can execute is something that's prefabricated to be deployed en masse, which is what I described before, which is picketing in an extremely um, you know disconnected way. Um, it is important to note that there are many small issues that you know it don't rise to the level of something that a whole community can be mobilized around. Just like important legislation in the past and important social services have been killed not through an all-out full frontal attack, but through you know a thousand cuts over the course of years, so too can unions be killed over small cuts, small kinds of pressure where the attack of the employer does not raise to the level that will, will trigger like the gag reflex of the entire community. And so in those cases, it is important for us to be able to um, leverage a variety of creative union tactics um, short of going on strikes. There is always, whether people have a contract or not, a tacit uh, balance of power with the employer. Um, you know, unless people have taken over their workplace and have cooperativized it, there's always, the war is ongoing and people you know, make strategic decisions in some cases. Uh, using certain parts of the law, unfair practice, labor, uh, unfair labor practice complaints, other processes can be part of that solution. Negotiations can be part of that solution um, in periods where the issues could be, you know, they don't rise to a certain level of, of high pitch. Um, so I don't want to be, you know, glib about it. Uh, the reality is that many people, like on the in the scale that we would like to see them unionize, are not doing so. And what that tells me is that the cost of unionization is too high on the individual. And we have to find solutions, creative solutions, to lower the cost on the individual in terms of time, in terms of intensity, so that more people on aggregate unionize at the rates that we need in order to stop the advance of fascism in our society and to fight social regression and to fight for the kind of social progress that we want to see. It's going to require a lot of innovative thinking. It's going to require us to be free from uh, uh, you know, uh, thinking that's stuck in the past before World War II. 
Um, and I think that right now there's a lot of open-mindedness, a lot of creativity, a lot of talent in the labor movement. Um, and to talk a little bit about how people can, can, can move towards getting unionized and getting organized, um, a lot of people uh, think that when they call up a union, they're going to get a stack of what are called authorization cards and that the request is just going to be to collect signatures hand them back to the, to the union, who will give it to the National Labor Relations Department, that will, you know, trigger a speedy election and a fair one, that, uh, you know, people will vote for a union, that the SWAT team will descend on the employer and force them to bargain collectively in good faith, to send decision makers to the bargaining table, and then to obey the collective agreement at the end. But the reality is that that system has not worked very well, uh, that it doesn't work very well in normal times. It doesn't work well under uh, under the current directors of the National Labor Relations Board. And it certainly does not work well under COVID, uh, where uh, different district, different region, regional offices are working at different levels of capacity and have uh, worked at very uh, uh, troubling and varying levels of capacity over the... the COVID times. So what other unions, as well as ourselves, have begun to shift towards doing is taking the focus away from certification elections and focusing on building the kind of social structure that people need in order to be able to substantiate a union. So what I mean is uh, to build the kind of social structure of people being together, of the workers being together, where they can sit down, identify workplace problems, take what might be vague workplace problems, and with our help, convert them into specific, clear, winnable union demands right. to be able to have meetings where people prioritize Max, those demands, Max, work I'm, out action. Yeah, I'm, sure. Yeah, I'm going to have to cut you off. We are uh, going to be talking with him uh, for one more segment. Stay tuned. This is the Valley Labor Report talking to Maxim Baru about organizing. Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host and fellow agitator David Story. On the line with us is Maxim Baru, the organizing department chair, uh, the international organizing department chair for the IWW, uh, talking about how to organize your union. Like, uh, like I said, uh, th that's what he was talking about. Um, before we went into the break and, and you know so for for folks that are listening to this that are thinking this union stuff that sounds that sounds cool I'd like to have more power in my workplace I'd like to have a voice I'd, I'd like to have higher wages better working conditions he's talking about how to do that uh, right now so uh, uh, Maxim take it away sure yeah so as I was just saying uh, most people think when they contact a union that what they're what they're going to get are a stack of authorization cards that the National Labor Relations Board, once they get your signatures, uh, will act swiftly and effectively. But the reality is that it doesn't work very well during normal times, does not work well under its current directorship, and does not work well during COVID. So what we and other unions have shifted to doing 
is focusing on building the necessary social structures that can actually uh, uh, perform the acts needed to get you leverage. So what does that mean exactly? What that means is taking vague workplace problems, converting them into demands, having uh, butts in seats and having meetings where you can prioritize which demands to go after, how to organize them, go after and think through what are the risks, what are the opportunities, what are the, what are the uh, act, uh, burdens of the action, uh, and to be able to execute the action in a swift and effective and safe manner, and to be able to uh, save those concessions. Once you've won, you have to remain in a position where you can protect what you've won. And uh, uh, the reality is that uh, this kind of heavy-duty work is work that any union will ask you ultimately to do, and in fact that you will be required to do in order to keep your union going. As we talked about earlier, um, a lot of unions over time, they, they kind of hollow out because of dependence on the national headquarters, because people at the shop floor uh, don't have any agency to defend themselves in a quick and effective manner. So ultimately, whether or not your union survives depends on your level of organization at where you work directly. Um, and this doesn't mean that sometimes certifications or some kinds of those, those components aren't used. It's just that they are one tool in the toolbox. We do not cede the right or the authority for the government to tell us what is a union and what is not a union. When is a union authorized to be somewhere? When is it not authorized to be somewhere? In our estimation, codified as well in international labor law, if a group of workers chooses to associate, they are a union. Yep. Uh, and if the particular legal uh, tool that we need to use at some point or another is strategically useful, then we will use it. If it becomes strategically un unuseful, then we will discard it. It is also not a straight arrow in one direction. Uh, but that, in a nutshell, uh, is what is required. And what we often do, what it means for us, is we provide people with strategic advisors who are going to be on call for, for people from day one. And we provide people with financial support as their campaign grows, as their union push grows. Many unions will wait until there is a collective agreement in place um, in or, or until there's almost a certification election in order to put their full weight behind a, a group of workers. We don't do that. We put our weight behind people from day one, and we ask people to become members of our community from day one as well and have that kind of uh, direct relationship with us. Uh, we also believe, uh, and this is an important part of getting unionized, is becoming a member of the union because it is a part of your disciplining your union. We will never have the employer collect the dues and give it to the union. We want you to pay the union uh, as you see fit that it is doing its job for you, and you discipline the union. If the union stops performing what you think it should be performing, uh, you, you can, you know, you, your dues are voluntary. Uh, it's, a, it's an important factor of democracy that people should be involved in from the get-go of building their union. You know, I've, I've had that conversation with numerous people over the years that I'm not a tremendous fan of the uh, other company collecting dues or forced dues, you know, for that mm -hmm. simple fact because it takes the pressure off of your union, and I hate to say the term leadership, but in the you know in the business unions they are a form of leadership. But it takes that pressure off of them, 
and allows them the comfort of saying, well, if I don't get to this this week, it's not that big of a deal as opposed to let's, you know, as opposed to when you're in the workplace and you have a grievance, it's handled immediately, immediately through the IWW as opposed to, you know, if, if you go through the grievance procedure uh, and, and it has to go to arbitration, you're talking about a year to a year mm-hmm. and a half sometimes before. It takes just six months for an arbitrator generally to come back with a ruling. Mm-hmm. You know, if you've got somebody that's lost pay for, for a month and they're doing without that pay for a year and a half, that's of no benefit whatsoever to them. Right. Absolutely. That's right. Yeah. And, and um, you know, you you mentioned this uh, during the break, David, and, and maybe we'll talk about this a little bit after um, uh, Maxim gets off the phone. But um, the there was a, a Smithfield um, uh, chicken plant in port, port plant. plant in South Dakota or North Dakota? South Dakota. South Dakota, where they had 1,300 coronavirus infections, four deaths. And they filed a complaint with the NLRB, and they won their complaint, and they won it. What they 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 won a settlement? Yeah, or they, OSHA came. They basically sent a, a complaint to OSHA, okay. saying that the company wasn't protecting their health, which they weren't. Right. When you force all these workers shoulder to shoulder to to process pork uh, in these conditions. Mm-hmm. And and they won. Well, they didn't win. But they fined the OSHA came in. The great Trump appointed OSHA people right. came in and fined the company thirteen thousand five hundred dollars yeah. for four workers' deaths. Right. So we have a price of what a worker's death is in America. It's roughly three grand. Yeah. I mean, it's it's crazy. So that really underscores, like, even when you get a win on paper so to speak and OSHA actually finds uh, a company which is quite you know which almost never ha- which is very rare um, that $13,000 to Smithfield is nothing you know the way to hurt Smithfield is to shut down a plant you know shut down distribution uh, and that's that's what the um, you know that's the model that the IWW wants to instill in people and, and wants to educate people about because a lot of folks even in unions don't really recognize the fact that they're 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 the biggest stick the the most effective tool that they have in their toolbox is their ability to withhold labor. Um. So. Uh, Maxim, and if you've got the time, we would like to keep you on for another segment. Do you have the time to stay on for sure, one more yeah. segment? Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we, we do have a few more minutes before uh, this segment ends. Uh, a couple more. Uh, so could you just go ahead and start talking about, and you'll we'll wrap that up in the next segment, but just start, start talking about some success stories. You know, maybe somebody's listening and they're like, okay, this sounds good, but, like, does it actually work? Like, you know, just talk about some some times where this has been tried and tested in the real world and people have won. Right. So I'll tell you uh, about an experience I had uh, unionizing, uh, uh, working with municipal bus drivers. Uh, These were, it was like a a subcontractor of municipal bus drivers. It was about 90 people in that particular subcontractor, the overwhelming majority of which were workers, uh, were immigrant workers who did not speak uh, the dominant language. And uh, 
they had been attempting to go through the you know the proper grievance procedure for ages. They had been compiling documentation of you know uh, uh, unpaid wages. Um, their lead organizer was actually um, uh, by the time that uh, that I met her. Uh, she was she was very pregnant. It was winter time. The employers were started. She was the shop steward. The employers were messing with her, forcing her to walk across an icy uh, um, uh, parking lot to get to her bus. Parking her bus far away, working long hours. Uh, but when 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 uh, we encountered her and we began talking about uh, okay, let's try something new. It's been years. It's been more. It was more than five years of compilation of like infractions by the company. And we talked about uh, building a workplace committee and beginning to <clears throat> organize people to take coordinated but spontaneous action. Um, and that got her interested. We immediately got a small group of workers together. Initially, it was something like six, seven people. We had long slogs of conversations where we had to get over people's initial hesitation. A lot of this was through interpreters, incidentally. Um, you know, because people were afraid that people would backstab one another, that this kind of model couldn't work. Uh, there was a lot of hesitation. You know, uh, that people wouldn't you know uh, meet outside of work for free, but in, in reality, they, they were already doing so. And uh, we discussed this kind of uh, this kind of model, and what was decided was to go after uh, the company right. by. We'll talk uh, more after the break. Stay tuned. You're, You're listening, listening to the Valley Labor Report, Report with, with David Story and Jacob Morrison. The Valley Labor Report is also supported by listeners like you. If you value the work that we are doing, injecting a different perspective into talk radio, and you have the means, consider signing up for a monthly donation on patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash the Valley Labor Report to support our work and keep us on the air. If you're looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, if you need iron workers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Iron Workers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Iron Workers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256 383 3334, that's 256-383-3334, or via email at local477 at net, and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. 770 AM, 92.5 FM, WVNF, depend on it. Now you want higher wages, let me tell you what to do. Got to talk to the workers in the shop with you. You got to build you a union, got to make it strong. Folks, but if you all stick together, boys, don't be long. Folks, you get welcome back hours. to the Valley Labor Report. 
My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host David Story. On the line we have Maxim Baru. He is the International Organizing Department Chair for the IWW and we are talking about some success stories, some places where um, the IWW's theory of unionism, of direct action by workers on the shop floor has been tried and tested and won. Um, because you know, there's a lot of people, most people in the audience are probably not a part of, a, of an active union in their workplace right now. And so they could, um, you know, you would rightly be skeptical of, of, uh, of, of somebody, um, you know, telling you, you know, you, you want to hear, hear the places where this has worked. And, and that's what Maxim is talking about right now. So uh, take it away, brother. Yeah, so talking about these municipal bus drivers, uh, we, we began getting together with a small group of people, and once we were able to overcome the initial sense of like mutual suspicion that there was simply too much uh, backstabbing at the workplace, that people were too divided, that people would be too scared, um, uh, after long conversations where essentially we were saying, uh, you know, we are not here to motivate you. It's, are you motivated by your problems? In which case we can offer some, uh, some of our best practices that we've learned from other experiences about how to go about tackling some of these problems. And ultimately, just to give you an example of one of the first actions that we took, uh, these bus drivers, they were only being paid from the moment they started up their bus uh, until the moment where the bus was parked. But all of that work at the very morning where they, they needed to prepare for their, for their day, they needed to be picked up by a bus and arrive at work at the bus station and from where they park their, bu their, their bus and they need to perform end-of-day duties, those two periods were not paid. And we decided strategically that that would be an action with, uh, that would be something worth tackling as a way to mobilize the workforce and show its value. So what we ended up doing is preparing workers to do what we refer to as a march on the boss. One of our first tactics was to elect a another shop steward then we uh, we invited the boss to a meeting. We didn't tell the boss what the meeting was about. Uh, the in the meantime, the workers were engaged in phone banking, and these are people that are working extremely long days, uh, have you know other like personal burdens. Uh, phone banking the crap out of people. Uh, like uh, uh, getting them to come to an action, not even necessarily completely knowing what the action will be and planning out exactly who is going to be the person that speaks, who is going to be the person that issues the demand, how is the demand going to be worded, what is the deadline for the demand to be executed, what is the method of communication that the employer is to use in acknowledging that they will comply with the demand, and in this case it was payment for those two periods that had been previously unpaid. Um, and 40 people, 40, 45 people showed up, roughly half of the, uh, half of the uh, employees in that particular section of the company. And the employer, this had never happened before. There had been, there had been, of course, a lot of meetings where management shows up and tell workers, you know, some something banal from that week. But this was the first time that workers saw themselves taking control of the meeting, and it was an absolutely infectious experience. After that, our meetings at the at the union hall never dropped below about 40, 45 people, and at the height we had almost the entire workforce participating in those union meetings. We were meeting twice a week, 
twice a day for both shifts, uh, day shift and, and evening shift. Because people saw the like the amount of leverage that the, that that could exert, the employer didn't know what was going on. The employer uh, had to scramble to collect all the information of their employees to comply with the demand that they uh, agree over email to every employee that they will comply with this and uh, and, and execute the, the change of pay. So those are the kinds of actions. At the, at the very even even within the first few months of a campaign, if people pursue the union homework diligently, if people spend a little bit of time every day and every week uh, per, uh, performing the kinds of pieces of homework that we that we suggest, which are often just involve you know talking to people, building relationships with people. Um, people have to remember that striking and strike actions, even the minuscule ones, are just a performance at the end of a long preparation. So doing that, that tough preparatory work, that preparatory work that you will never see in a movie about unions right. uh, is, it, uh, is uh, hugely important and, and can uh, extract fabulous concessions very quickly and, and completely change the atmosphere of a workplace. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And what you were talking about there, I, I, I want to underscore how democratic that process is yeah. that you laid out. Um, we talked last week with some folks in the machinist union who went on strike and, and won concessions uh, in their contract. And something that we wanted to point out there as well is that the decisions to do these things are democratic. They're made by the members in no union, much less the IWW, but in no union is somebody... Especially yes, the IWW. Especially with the IWW. No, but, but, but there's nobody coming from Montreal or from D.C. or New York telling workers in, you know, <clears throat> wherever in Alabama, you have to go on strike. You have to do a work-to-rule campaign right now. You have to uh, do a work slowdown. Nobody's doing that, and especially not in the IWW. These are worker-led um, actions. actions. Exactly. They're taken democratically, um, and, and, and I think that's that's incredibly important to underscore. And that's how they work. That's how they work best. You know, even if it were possible for somebody from D.C. to come down and tell you to go on strike. That strike is not going to be nearly as effective as a strike that is taken by a vote of the membership yeah. uh, at a workplace. It's going to be wholly ineffective. Yeah, it is going exactly. To be the, the most power that you will ever have in the workplace is going to come from that grassroots worker-led organization. The mm -hmm. absolute most. The weakest you will ever be is when you're relying on some union bureaucrat and, and mm -hmm. call it like, well, like we see it. To come in and uh, and tell you what to do, right? So Absolutely, and there's and there's another element to it, which is, I mean, you know, strikes are very difficult, and employers have had as much experience with them as we have had, and they have learned from that experience and set up all sorts of processes to be able to uh, endure strikes. And the reality is that even often very effective strikes, at the end of that, you win a range of concessions, you do change the culture of the workplace, but the fight continues. The fight is never, almost never solved by one strike or one round of mobilization. There are future rounds to take on. And it is essential that people have democratic and collective sense of consent and buy-in at what they're doing so that mm -hmm. when they when things do dip back down into kind of a kind of a plateau, 
between wartime. Uh, they they feel that they did they made those choices together. Mm-hmm. They won what they won together, and they lost where they lost together. Right. Whereas if somebody instructs them what to do from outside, and they don't consent to that, and the real in in the you know active, enthusiastic, and real consent, mm-hmm. then uh, they're going to hold that union responsible, right. and they're not you know they're not it's not going to uh, sit well over time. Yeah, and one thing to point out is we we're spending a lot of time discussing strikes and but you you pointed it out early on and, and it bears repeating the fact that a strike is generally your absolute last mm. your highest level of direct action that you can get there's so many other levels of direct action uh leading up to that that can force the company to come to the table and to bargain with the workers collectively prior to a strike and i think you know a lot of times people hear strike and they're like ah oh, i don't you know i don't i don't want to do that well you don't have to do that that's mm-hmm. just the last point in making your point so there there's so much more we always say we can do more damage on the shop floor than we can ever do out on the street right right um so we have been talking to uh maximum maxim baru the international uh uh, organizing department chair for the IWW. Uh, if you're coming into the interview late, uh, no worries at all. You can find the interview on our YouTube page at uh, the bat. You can search YouTube for the Valley Labor Report. I really enjoyed the interview, uh, Maxim. Thanks so much for coming on, brother. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Anytime. It was our pleasure. Certainly our pleasure. All right. All right. Like I said, folks, you can go back and listen to that online at uh, at YouTube. We've got about. 30 minutes left in the in the show so make sure you do not change the channel we'll be right back you're listening to the valley labor report with david story and jacob morrison The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time, but the attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maple, Tucker, and Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtandj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. You have questions. We have answers. News Talk 770 AM, 92.5 FM, WVNN. Depend on it. WVNN. Welcome back to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. I'm here with my co-host, David Story. We just wrapped up an interview with Maxim Baru. 
He is the International Organizing Department Chair for the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World. Um, really enjoyed that interview. If y'all have any questions about that or anything else related to organizing a union, building your union in your workplace, making it more powerful, making it more militant, winning demands, stuff like that, give us a call at one 866 Four nine four nine eight six six. Again, that is one eight six six four nine four WVNN. And Al, fellow worker Al, if you're out there still listening, you know we got your message. We talked to uh, Max in the radio break, and he wasn't too positive exactly what you were asking. So we kind of just went ahead and dropped him off. But we, I just wanted to let you know we didn't ignore your question. Yeah. Uh, we just couldn't figure out exactly uh, what the question was about. So wanted you to know we've seen it. I apologize right. for that. Right. Yeah, so uh, like, like I said, I really enjoyed that. And if you got any, any questions about uh, stuff like that, then, you know, give us a call. We would love to chat with you at one eight six six four nine four nine eight six six. And we've got a branch here in Huntsville. We you do know, have we, a I mean, it's a, yes. it's a fairly strong branch here in Huntsville. Yeah, we got like 30 or 40 folks that are, um, uh, you know, that want to help folks organize. And one thing that I like about the IWW, the reason that I'm a member of the IWW is that Anybody can be a member. You can be a member of the IWW uh, even if you're in another union like David and I are, uh, or if you currently don't have a job and you want to help other workers organize or you want to uh, organize for the rights of unemployed folks and, and for things that unemployed folks need. Um, it's, a, it's a really inclusive uh, union that, that anybody can be a part of. And, and a big reason that I wanted to join a union like that is because as a member of uh, the American Federation of Government Employees, I can't like go to my local bar, let's say, and say, hey, you know, do you want to join the do you want to join AFGE? You want you, you know you you want to organize with AFGE? I can't do that. AFGE only organizes uh, government workers. Whereas uh, as a member of the IWW, I can actually talk to, uh, you know, talk to my bartender or talk to my barista and say, hey, uh, you know, like, let me know if you want to, like, make your life better <laughs> and, uh, and build a union in your workplace and I can help you um, uh, because that's, you know, that, that's why I'm in the labor movement. That's why I, I do what I do is so that I can help um, help build class consciousness in the working class, help to build worker power, help to create a world that is run by and for workers. Yeah. Um, and you really need and the, 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 the labor movement. When you talk about the labor movement, the labor movement has dwindled down to as far mm -hmm. as percentage wise goes based on the rest of employment to, you know, 10, 8, 12%, depending on what part of the nation you're in. Mm -hmm. But this ability to organize through the IWW allows you to organize across all, all mm -hmm. different occupations and professions. And that's so important in building that solidarity, mm -hmm. not just on your shop floor, but throughout your entire city. Right. Because that's where you're going to start make, seeing the yeah. tremendous gains. Yeah, through your city, through your state, through your country, and um, through the world. You know, the uh, the working class is, is international. You have more in common with, um, with peasants in uh, Guatemala than you do with uh, Jeff Bezos. So, you know, that's an important thing to remember. Um, 
Oh shoot, there was something that I was gonna say and I lost I lost track. My bad. No, that's not a problem. That was my fault. Um, um But organize. Yeah, you should organize. Everybody should organize. We go back to the same thing. That's right. Organize. Yeah. (laughs) Lost my train of thought, so I'm just going to tell people to organize. But, uh, but, I mean, it's like it's important, though. Like, that's how uh, that uh, he was talking. So, Maxim was talking about fighting not only for gains on the shop floor, but fighting against fascism and social regression and uh, doing that through the labor movement. That is how working people have won in the past. That's how we won against fascism in the past. That's how we fought back against social regression in the past. The labor movement has always been at the center of any significant movement that actually helped working people in America. I mean, if we've discussed it in the past, the whole reason MLK was in Memphis when he was assassinated was for the sanitation workers. Right. And, and the UAW had a big hand in the March on Washington. Exactly. There wouldn't have been transportation if it wasn't for the brotherhood of sleeping car porters led by a Philip Randolph. I mean, um, and then, uh, uh, the the abolitionist movement. There was a lot of labor unionists in there. Um, the uh, I, I mean, like, well, and a lot of people don't recognize that when he went to when MLK Jr. went to <clears throat> prison in Birmingham in our own state, mm-hmm. the UAW came in and posted the bail for him That's to get amazing. out. I didn't know. That. I mean, that is that yeah. is a fact, right? And and it's so uh, the New Deal. Why do you, you know, if, if, if you're an older listener and you're relying on, and you've got Medicare and you have Social Security, uh, how did that come about? How, it wasn't, it, that did not happen because uh, uh, FDR, enlightened liberal, uh, you know, kingmaker or what, uh, you know, um, that wasn't that didn't happen because he was so benevolent and loving and whatever it happened because he could not but do that like he could not help but doing that because there was a militant workers movement led by radicals uh, that had power on shop floors across the country that demanded support for our elderly for our poor for people that needed health care that needed a retirement pension um, that like something it was a concession yes it, it was a concession based on the haymarket affair. I right. mean, that, that is an absolute fact. It was a concession by the government to the workers because they were in absolute unbelievable numbers in the streets demanding mm-hmm. respect mm-hmm. on the job. Right, right. And, and you know, folks, like, they just, they, they don't, um, they, they don't know that. They don't, like, recognize that, that people, like, I mean, people literally fought and died and were killed, were assassinated by the state or by mercenaries that were uh, contracted by the state for... Or mercenaries that were contracted by... The Pinkertons. By, yeah, the Pinkertons, yeah. by, by the companies that yeah, had yeah. the support of the federal government. Yeah, I, I mean, the um, that is how we got every freedom that we have in and from the workplace today... Uh, was not bequeathed to us. And even outside of the workplace, like freedom of speech. David and I are both um, incredibly pro-freedom of speech. And I have harped on this multiple times on the show. How did we get such broad free speech rights and protections from the government uh, uh, to be able to express our opinions 
It came from militant workers' movements. The, when, when the First Amendment was written, it meant basically nothing. Right. Most of the country, uh, you, you could be jailed for having a different opinion. You could be jailed for being an atheist or not being a Christian or being black or, or, a um, communist. or a communist. I mean, people were – American citizens were literally deported because they were, uh, quote-unquote, sub- subversives. Um, you know, because they had uh, anti-capitalist ideologies in the early 20th century. And this is something like freedom of speech did not mean anything until these people were real willing to uh, uh, put their bodies out on the line and put, the, put their labor power on the line for these rights, not just for themselves, but for other people's. Uh, like the ACLU was founded by uh, by members of uh, by uh, one of the founders was a member of the IWW as well, and they don't just you know the ACLU uh, does not just fight for the rights of like radicals and and or liberals or, or liberals or uh, you know I mean they defended uh, uh, they defended Nazis' rights to uh, march in the streets because like this is a democratic value. The freedom of speech and the fact that every worker um, should have the uh, should have the right to express themselves and and these rights were not you know won by uh, the founders putting that in the Bill of Rights they were won by people in the streets people going on strike people engaging in work stoppages stuff like that and that is how we're going to win gains for the working class moving forward it's not going to be that oh we elected Joe Biden and he did and and he saved the country. Okay. Nobody's coming to save the country. Nobody's coming. Like, we have to do it. We have to organize. We have to get organized. And we have to use our organization to fight against social regression. We have to use our organizations as workers. Uh, we have to stand with our brothers and sisters to fight for each other. Because uh, nobody is coming to save us from the top. Yeah, it, all, it goes back to the same thing that we, when we originally started the show... And what we've talked about throughout the entire time we've been on this show is regardless of what these talking heads on the right want to tell you, no one is coming to save you. I've been around for 50 years, and in the entire 50 years, I've seen Democratic presidents, I've seen Republican presidents, and almost nothing Almost nothing has changed. Mm-hmm. Now they're going to play it up like, "Oh Lord, if this is the most important election ever, if if we don't get X person elected, the whole world's going to come to an end." There's going to be rioting in the streets. There's already rioting in the streets. Right. There's going to be people moving to the suburbs, coming after your guns, and uh, yada yada yada. And I've heard it for fifty damn years. And then nothing has changed. The only way to change anything is to organize a movement yeah. <clears throat> and demand it. Yeah, that, I mean that's <laughs> like you're you're just uh, you know I think like I know that I'm going to be voting gener- like I I vote for Democrats right but I surely like not. Yeah, surely, surely not <laughs> surely not but you know like. 
I take 15 minutes out of my day, and some people have to take longer uh, a longer time to go and vote. Um, I happen to be in a majority white precinct, and so uh, they make sure that that we have uh, access, access to the ballot booth. Now, if you go um, into the black belt and you look at some of those lines that were there on the primary election day, people were waiting in Alabama for hours to go and vote. And it just so happened to be a majority-minority precinct. And I wonder why that is. But that's a whole other story. But voter suppression doesn't exist, guys. That's, that's, a, that's a liberal myth. Um, anyway, I take time out of my day once or twice or three, however many times a year. And I go and vote. And I vote for people that I think will will be in my way the least. <laughs> you know? yeah, I we're don't, not saying like, don't go vote. We're not saying that right. voting is not important. What we are saying don't is depend they're not on it. going to save you. Right. Don't depend on it. And I like I don't ultimately I don't care who you vote for in November. I care, of course, but the through line, the most important thing is that people organize and that we fight for each other. We've got one more segment. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with David Story and Jacob Morrison. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time, but the attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maple, Tucker, and Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtandj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. The Valley Labor Report is also supported by listeners like you. If you value the work that we are doing, injecting a different perspective into talk radio, and you have the means, consider signing up for a monthly donation on patreon.com slash thevalleylaborreport. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash thevalleylaborreport to support our work and keep us on the air. People across Alabama are hurting. Elected leaders have bailed out corporations while sending only a one-time cash payment to working families despite record unemployment and a public health crisis. Hometown Action is fighting for working people across Alabama to build inclusive and sustainable small town and rural communities. Hometown Action demands that Congress pass a people's bailout that expands health care, sends cash payments to families, and invests in green jobs to restart the economy. Now is the time to act. Learn more at www.hometownaction.org. The American Federation of Government Employees, AFGE Local 1858, believes all workers are entitled to fairness, dignity, and respect. AFGE also knows that the best way to guarantee proper treatment is for workers to stand together, united, looking out for each other. In AFGE, we fight for workers every day to ensure a workplace that is safe and free from harassment. If you're a federal employee and want to be a part of this union to protect yourself and your fellow workers, call 256 Eight seven six four eight eight zero.
The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time, but the attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maple, Tucker, and Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtandj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. WVNN. You call yourself a girl, boy, Billy Smoke Cow. You call the meeting, Britney Smoke Cow. You call the street, Billy Smoke Cow. You call the meeting, Britney Smoke Cow. You Folks, welcome back to the Valley Labor Report. This is the last segment. If you want to give us a call, 1-866-494-9866 is the number. My name is Jacob Morrison. I'm here with my co-host, David Story. David, you've got an ad read, don't you? You leave it at home? I left it. God, you know, Tony, if you're out there listening. <laughs> oh, man. Tony, you know what? Before we came on the air, he was like, man, there's no way I'm ever reading that guy's ad. He gets yeah. on my <laughs> No. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. You know, but let's, let, I'll give him a quick shout out because we don't have, I did, uh, uh, as usual, my preparedness is terrible on a Saturday morning. I mean, this is supposed to be an off day for those of us that actually work for a living. <laughs> uh, but uh, one of the friends at work uh, has a restaurant called Punta Cana over in Madison and this guy is a hard-working uh, immigrant uh, son of immigrants first generation from the Caribbean and okay. he brought in some uh, some Caribbean some Dominican uh, chicken and rice and beans and oh I mean just fed the entire department my entire department and it was so good mm-hmm. and so I talked to him about uh, about running an ad on the show and he he was more than happy to but go over there and see him in madison it's right near the uh public shopping center there on uh what is that airport road i think or uh county line road county line road uh punta cana it's unbelievably good food and you're going to support a great guy it's family owned okay first generation worker Uh, and so this is like caribbean food yes caribbean he's from the dominican but okay. it's it's traditional Caribbean, so you can get the jerk chicken, mm-hmm. you can get the whole nine uh, yards. But the food is excellent, chicken. and yeah. and it's reasonable. It's like you can go in there and get a three piece plate for like eight or nine dollars with a drink. It's real reasonable. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. That's a good price. Yeah, and it's something that you don't see a lot around here. Is that no. type of food? So yeah, go over there and see him. Tell him that Dave and Jacob sent you over there from the Valley Labor Report. He's not going to give you a discount, but he may. I don't know. He didn't tell me. You strong arm him. Yeah. Strong arm him into giving you a discount, ten percent or something for for advertising on the Valley Labor Report. I'll go over there and help you. Give him a give me a call. 
Yeah. We need to organize as workers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that would be a great way to pay him back for advertising on the show. I think uh, all of his workers are a family. Uh, yeah, Honestly, yeah, no, it I'm is sure truly it is. a family-run yeah. business. Yeah, that sounds that sounds good. I'll I'll have to come by. I love I love jerk chicken. I love grilled chicken. So I'm I'm gonna have to uh, come good. by and see him sometime. That chicken yeah, chicken is unbelievable. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, so we've only got just a couple of minutes, and um, you know I'm I uh, I guess I can I can. You know, yesterday five was minutes to yeah. Be so four and a half. Yesterday was my uh, was my birthday actually, but it was also the reason that y- y- yesterday was notable for the rest of y'all is that uh, it was September 11th, and um, you know that is that's a day that's been like seared into everybody that's my age and older. I was five. I turned five the day that that happened. Wow. And uh, I remember that. I remember where I was um, because I, I came out of my room in the morning and my, my, my parents were sitting in the floor in the living room, which was not common. And, you know, like my mom was crying and my dad told me to go in my room. Um, and, and so, like, I just remember, like, the energy in, in the house was just really weird yeah, that somber. day. Somber. Um, so that, uh, you know, that it, it's uh, it, it, it's crazy to think about what happened i mean i'm assuming you remember where you were oh uh, I, I, believe it or not and i it's, I, I try not to tell a story a lot because i don't really care to remember where i was at but i was in new york when that happened wow i was checking into my hotel the more i had worked third shift i had flew into new i'd flew into ontario the mm-hmm. night before and driven into new york mm-hmm. and worked third shift at uh General Motors Messina plant in Messina, New York, and was checking in my hotel room when that when that plane hit. Wow, that's that's crazy. Yeah, I I mean, um, that's difficult. Yeah, I mean, I I I, I couldn't imagine. So you saw it like in person? No, I was watching it on TV. I was yeah, actually yeah. checking in to the hotel, and it was right there on TV, and it was like. Yeah. What in the world is going on? Yeah, so. I mean it, it's, um, and it's you know it's a somber day to uh, you know and 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 I think um, and it's a day that that folks feel so um, patriotic you know like you're you, you're proud to be an American and 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 you care about your countrymen and, and your brothers and sisters um, uh, and, and it's a way to kind of bridge a divide and and you know i i want I, you know that kind of speaks to what um what we want to do in in a different context is to build bridges like uh like we're built on september the 12th yeah. in the workplace yeah. uh you know and, and unfortunately that unification of the country was um, it was used by the people in power for other means uh, to to yeah, we've lost wreak havoc. More rights since then, yeah, to wreak then. havoc on Americans and on people all over the world. But we want to build unity among people, among our countrymen, among our brothers and sisters, to help people. And we believe that the labor movement can do that. We believe that it's a patriotic thing to be a part of the labor movement, uh, to help your brothers and sisters, to be a part of something that is bigger than yourself. 
Um, yeah. There, and there was no government. You know, there was no Republicans or Democrats going out and fighting those wars that mm-hmm. that came after that. Yeah. You know, there it was it was workers, and you right. may call them the military, but those military folks are workers. There was no politicians unless they were going over there in, in armored vehicles to get a photo op. Mm-hmm. There was workers over there fighting those wars. Yeah, that that the politicians sent them to. And uh, it, it's just, um, it's so unfortunate what that unity was, was used for uh, in, in the days after and, and the years after. Uh, I mean, we're still over there. We're still over there. And, uh, and you know, nobody can tell you what winning looks like. Uh, nobody can tell you um, what, uh, uh, what the ideal situation is. And it, but, um, but we do want to encourage that kind of unity. Uh, we feel like that's important to build bridges across divides because a lot of times these divides are superficial because uh, we all want the same thing. We all want better lives for ourselves and our brothers and sisters. Uh, So remember that and uh, have a good week, y'all.